there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad you press play. And trust me, you will be too when you learn more about my next guest. But before I introduce you to him, I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that what he will be sharing with you about just how profoundly and insidiously various foods like dairy and cheese are affecting your brain and your health could radically change your life for the better. And in the process, help you to realize your full potential personally and professionally. But first, I want to put this episode into a little bit of context. As I hope you know, when I launched Time for Coffee in August 2018, it was because I wanted to help all of you, the 18 to 28-year-olds who are college students, grad students, and young professionals, to turn your degrees into careers you love. In fact, that's the mission of T4C, and that is why all the content we produce is free. And we're trying to accomplish this mission by bringing professionals in dozens of different careers from the entry level to the C-suite to you for on-demand content, caffeinated career conversations. But another super important part of T4C's mission is to help educate you about health, wellness, and self-care. Because as I learned the hard way, my friends, what good is it to have a job you love if your physical and or your mental health sucks? I am 55 years old, and over the years, I have struggled with things like an eating disorder, depression, anxiety, drinking too much alcohol, hypothyroidism, another autoimmune disease called Raynoids or Raynaud's. And it was only after I educated myself about the huge importance of good nutrition and learned about the gut-brain connection that I began to get myself on a healthier path. And over the course of the last year, I have had the privilege of interviewing some really exceptional experts, whether it's Dr. Mark Hyman or Dr. Bill Sticksrud and Ned Johnson or Dr. Ellen Vora. And you can find all of these episodes on the T4C website at time, the number four coffee.org. Just scroll down to the bottom that says wellness. You'll see the box that says wellness, health, and self-care. Well, today, I am thrilled to have another expert to add to that extraordinary list of healers. Dr. Neil Barnard is an adjunct associate professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and he is the president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, which he founded way back in 1985, the year I graduated from college. Dr. Barnard has led numerous research studies investigating the effects of diet on diabetes, on body weight, and on chronic pain, including a groundbreaking study of dietary interventions in type 2 diabetes that was funded by the National Institutes of Health. And that paved the way for viewing type 2 diabetes as a potentially reversible condition for many patients, something that was unimaginable not that long ago. Dr. Barnard has authored more than 90 scientific publications, and he's written 20 books for medical and lay readers, and is the editor-in-chief of The Nutrition Guide for Clinicians, a textbook made available to all U.S. medical students. 
As president of the Physicians Committee, Dr. Barnard leads programs advocating for preventative medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. His research contributed to the acceptance of plant-based diets in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And then, in 2016, he founded the Barnard Medical Center in Washington, D.C., where I actually am a patient, as a model for making nutrition a routine part of all medical care. Dr. Barnard, welcome to Time for Coffee. I know you're a medical doctor, but I have to ask you, are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am ready to go. Thank you so much for including me in the program. Absolutely. And you're not caffeinated. you want to tell us why? <laughs> Just not my thing. Coffee's not one of these things that has a lot of health issues about it. It's okay. I joke that I'm not old enough, but <laughs> okay. anyway, coffee's okay. All right. Well, before we dig into some of your research and the tremendous benefits of a plant-based approach to eating and the addictive nature of things like cheese, which I have to tell you, blew my mind. I mean, your book is right over your shoulder there, The Cheese Trap. I would love it if you could share with me and with the Time for Coffee community how a young guy who grew up on a farm, a working farm, in Fargo, North Dakota, ended up moving away from a meat-based approach to our diet as Americans to saying, no, that's not good for me. And in fact, I'm going to educate others about a plant-based approach to eating. Well, you know, we didn't really have a clue. I got to say, we thought nutrition matter just a little bit. You need protein, you need some iron. We didn't take it very far. And we didn't really think that what you eat and what you choose to have for breakfast and lunch and dinner could have any big effect. Couldn't reverse heart disease or make diabetes go away or any of those kinds of things. It was just this minor thing that we kind of neglected. And I got to say, my North Dakota roots were roast beef, baked potatoes, and corn, except for special occasions when it was roast beef, baked potatoes, and peas. And that was about as far as we went. But what happened to me was the year before I went to medical school, I had a job in a hospital in Minneapolis. And down in the basement of the hospital, it was the hospital morgue. And my job was to be the autopsy assistant. When anybody died in the hospital, I had to help the pathologist examine the body, which really meant he would open up the chest. Uh, well, I'll never forget, one day a man died in the hospital of a massive heart attack. And so here's the body. And he opens up the chest. He pulls off a big chunk of ribs off the front of the chest. And that laid open the heart. And he said, look in here. And he took a scalpel and he cut open one of the coronary arteries. And this was like a class for me. He said, we call them coronary arteries because they crown the heart. And look inside as I open up one of the coronaries. And he said, feel it. So I had gloves on and it felt inside the artery. And instead of it being this sort of flexible rubbery tube that I thought an artery would be like, it was, it was like concrete. It was hard, like a rock. And he said, that's atherosclerosis. Where does that come from? So that's your bacon your eggs, the cholesterol causes this to happen. And then he looked at the carotid arteries going to the brain. They had the same thing. And he said, this person died of a heart attack. He was headed for a stroke, but the heart attack killed him first. Anyway, this is all an eye opener. End of the day, he finishes up, writes up his notes, heads out of the room. And I'm left with the body that I got to clean up. And I put the organs back in, I put the ribs back in the chest and sewed up the skin. And then I went up to the cafeteria and they were serving ribs for lunch that day. And I got... <laughs> I wasn't a vegetarian or anything like that, but I looked at that and I thought, that looks just like a dead body. And it smelled like I couldn't eat it. I just couldn't eat it. And as time went on, this started to kind of play on my mind. And I learned all the other pieces. When it comes to food choices, there's the health consequences to your heart, to your brain, 
cancer risk, to your weight, all these things. There's the environmental concerns, which are in the headlines every day now. And then there's also the part about animals. And I have driven animals to slaughter. And I have hunted and done all these things that we took to be a normal part of our culture. And I just started to rethink everything. And so that was kind of the start of all this. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine how gruesome that was to be in the cafeteria seeing the ribs. But something that the doctor who did the autopsy said really struck me. And it was the fact that he made that connection to the food. And yet not many doctors then advised to cut it out completely. Why is that? Even at that time, I know this sounds peculiar to say, but for some people, particularly people who were kind of impoverished when they were young, we saw this with people immigrating to the United States as well, when they became wealthy enough to have meat every day, that meant you could arrive. And for some, they had developed heart disease as a result, and they would have what they would call a zipper, which meant your coronary artery bypass graft scar that you on would, your chest, on your chest, right down your midline, and that people would proudly have their zipper to show that they had arrived. So the point I'm making is people started to know that it was diet, it was also smoking, that these things contribute to heart disease, and yet that's part of life. You don't not do that. And I have to say, for my life, when I went to medical school, I would sneak hamburgers into the medical library, and I smoked cigarettes. Frankly, our patients could smoke in the hospital. As long as oxygen wasn't flowing, they could smoke in bed. All these things that sound crazy now, that was our life back then. We weren't stupid. We knew that smoking caused cancer. But somehow we thought, well, I can get away with it for a while. Yeah, it's one of and those vices that it's okay while you're young. And then maybe when you get into your 30s or 40s, you'll give it up. I think a lot of people have that attitude today. I know this is bad for me, but as long as I quit, eventually I'll be okay. And we have had the same idea about food. I can eat badly now when I'm young, but eventually I've got to clean it up before I get diabetes, before I get atherosclerotic disease, before I get whatever it is. And I got to tell you, we have learned that that is 180 degrees wrong because all of the seeds of later problems are being sown early in life. For example, guy walks into the doctor, says to the doctor, I got a problem with my nature. That's a euphemism for he's got erectile dysfunction. Got a problem with my nature. Fine. Here's your prescription for Viagra. Go to the pharmacy, pick it up. That man, he doesn't have performance anxiety. The reason he's got erectile dysfunction is he doesn't have good blood flow to his private parts. He's got atherosclerosis, narrowed arteries to his private parts. The male sexual anatomy is this hydraulic device that you've got to have good blood flow for it to work. It was obviously devised on a Monday because it's always like malfunctioning. But anyway, all Viagra does is it opens up the arteries temporarily. Here's the point. If he's got atherosclerosis there, he's got atherosclerosis in his heart. I mean, narrowed arteries in his heart, he's going to have a heart attack. He's got narrowed arteries to his brain. He's going to have a stroke. And the fact that he's got erectile dysfunction is a sign that all these other processes are in gear. But the one that became symptomatic first was the erectile dysfunction. But then if you go even back further in time, when he was 18 years old, the same process was happening not in his private parts and not so much in his heart or in his arteries to his brain, but in the arteries to his lower back. That's the first place it begins. The aorta comes off the top of the heart and it does a U-turn and runs right down in front of your spine. And it gives off arteries to every vertebral segment, the bony vertebrae. They get blood from the aorta. The very first place where artery blockages occur is not in the heart. It's in the arteries to the lower back. So, gee, I'm kind of sore today. Or after my accident, I just haven't been able to get back together or something like that. What I'm talking about is you might have trauma from day-to-day life, but if you've got a wide open blood supply to your lower back, you can heal. If you don't, then the discs that are between the vertebrae 
Okay. Like little leathery pillows that keep the vertebrae from bashing into each other. The discs between the vertebrae get fragile from the lack of oxygen. And just like a pillow, it explodes and the inside herniates out. It presses against the nerve and you get back pain. So people are starting to get those symptoms by age 18 or 20. A lot of American kids have completely lost one of those vertebral arteries. I mean, it's paved over by all their bacon and eggs. They're not aware of it. Nobody's told them. They don't think about a heart attack because that's a stage that's going to occur much later. To be even more frightening, researchers in Australia a few years ago started doing sonograms on babies. And what they found is that if a mother has been having an unhealthy diet during pregnancy, you could see artery changes, artery thickening at birth. So this process is lifelong. The heart attack that put this man in the morgue in the hospital, that was the final chapter of a book that he started to write when he was a child. And so kids today are immortal. I'm 18, 20, I can smoke, I can drink, I can do all these things. Your body is rotting from the inside out if we put junk into it. That's the bad news. The good news, almost all of this is reversible, but it's not reversible unless we really make a big change. But if you do, the body wants to heal, it, it will heal. So I want to ask you about that big change. And as you know, our listeners are between the ages of 18 and 28. They're actually of all ages, but that's right. who we're trying to educate the most are the young people. Dr. Barner, before I go on with that, I just want to tell you, unfortunately, because of the audio, oh. when, no, 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 when you hit the table that... Did I do that a whole bunch of times? Have <laughs> <laughs> I been yeah. beating on the table? You've been beating on the table. But, um, I'm sorry. No, How many times did I do that? I want to speak with you <laughs> both as a medical doctor, but specifically as a psychiatrist, because you said going back to when they're 18 and the lower back manifests pain. But what about the mental health? And there is an epidemic of anxiety among young people today, not to mention older people. But I know, because I'm seeing it in my own family, the depression that manifests, the anxiety that manifests among kids, ADHD. Do you think there is a connection between diet and some of these so-called mental health disorders that are breaking out all across the country? The answer is yes. That said, Growing up is rough, and it's rougher now than it has ever been. By that, I mean our lives are extremely complex. And when kids are, I don't mean just when you're 18, but when you're in school, when you're in junior high, kids have all kinds of anxieties and worries and things, and things that they're not prepared for. So it's easy for parents to say, oh, childhood, what a wonderful time. But what they forget is that the challenges of growing up are tough, and they can exceed a growing person's ability to deal with them in certain respects. So what happens when you're 18? You're either in college or you're in the working world and the anxieties multiply and you don't have a wealth of experience and you may not have mentors to really help you along the way. So things are not so hot. All that said, we did a study a few years ago with Geico, the car insurance company. Because if you look out the window, their headquarters is just down the block from here. And so the reason we did the study was they have 2,500 employees in this building and they've got obesity and diabetes, all kinds of health issues, and they wanted to provide better health. So what they decided to do was to provide a program for anybody who wanted to completely clean up their diet. 18 weeks, everyone was going to do a vegan diet, like no animal products at all, and the cafeteria was going to serve healthy food for everybody. I mean, they had bad foods too, but they would have, in addition to the double bacon cheeseburger, they would have the veggie burger and the oatmeal bar and the salad bar and the spaghetti marinara and healthy foods. So I got to say, people did great. They lost weight, they had diabetes, it got better and so forth. But in the course of this trial, we happened to rate mood with special tests for depression and anxiety. And we found that 
those things improved too, quite substantially. And we weren't exactly expecting that. And I didn't have a reason why that would be the case. We just knew they were getting healthier physically. But then we looked at more objective things like, are you at work or not? Like, did you call in sick? And we found that absenteeism fell way off in the people who made this diet change. So something about a healthier diet is affecting it. What could that something be? Part of it is that you're kicking certain things out of the diet. And this starts early in life. When you see kids who have ADHD, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, we're talking about kids who can't pay attention. They're extremely distractible. There have been a lot of theories that it's artificial colors, preservatives, artificial additives. Yes, for some kids, but not most. Then other people have said, wait a minute, it's a whole lot more wrong in the diet than that. How about all the sugar in your soda that you're having as well? Or dare I say, even the caffeine that's poured into some of those sodas when I'm nine years old, the kid's behavior is influenced by it. And people have gone a step further and said, the body reacts to certain parts of the diet like dairy, which kids are all told, drink your milk, not realizing that many kids react rather badly to the dairy protein. It's not an allergy. They don't break out in hives but they respond in ways they wouldn't otherwise respond. And we see this in all kinds of neurological ways. We see it with migraine headaches in many kids. Autoimmune conditions are triggered by it. And I'm not suggesting this is every kid. It's not. But what we do believe is that when kids clean up their diets and follow what I'm going to say, the best diet, 100% plant-based, no animal products, no dairy, a number of these kids settle down. And then in later life, because there's no animal fat, the blood circulates to the brain better, better oxygenation, and also better oxygenation of your muscles, which is why athletes do better on this kind of diet. So you asked a really good question. I'm giving a slightly overly complicated answer. But this being the new frontier of medicine, we do believe that the same diet that's good for the heart is also good for the brain. Fantastic. So in my introduction to you, Dr. Barnard, I said that you believe nutrition should be a routine part of all medical care. Could you break that down for us? What does that mean in practice? And why isn't nutrition a routine part of all medical care in this country at this point? Well, I think doctors can be forgiven for that up to a point because it used to be we thought, well, you've got an infection and if you've got pneumonia, you need an antibiotic. What you eat does not have anything to do with it. You've got a urinary tract infection. Let me give you an antibiotic. Nutrition plays no role. You've got heart disease. Well, did your father have heart disease? It's genetic. We didn't realize that we didn't just inherit genes, we also inherited recipes you know, from our families. So what we've come to realize, and in part from our research, when we started our work, diabetes was diabetes. You've got it, you're going to have it. And we showed, wait, this is a two-way street. We can get rid of it. For many people and for others, we can make it improve. Heart disease, those arteries can open up again. We didn't realize that. And that's the work of Dr. Dean Ornish. Even conditions like cancer, where you don't want to get cancer, but when people have it, their course after diagnosis is influenced by what they eat. And so now we have come to see in just the past decade or two that nutrition is the core of health and should be the core of medical practice. So you mentioned that the course of your future prognosis with respect to cancer is based on nutrition. But do you believe that we can prevent the development of cancer due to good nutrition? I don't think you're going to prevent it, everything. You could have perfect life and be a non-smoker and you'll still get cancer. But the genes that control the cells are fragile. They can break and they can change. So bad things can happen of all kinds. In the same way as you baby your car, but after about 200,000 miles, something's going to happen. Your body's like that too. That said, yes, if you don't smoke, your odds of getting lung cancer just fell through the floor. And if you are not eating animal products, if you're not eating the meat and the dairy, your risk of several forms of cancer diminishes. Digestive cancers, 
like colon cancer, colorectal cancer, which by the way is rising in young people because they all love bacon so much. Yeah, I'm telling you that's causing colon cancer. It really is. But also the hormone-related cancers like breast cancer, uterine and ovarian cancer, and then prostate cancer. These things are related to diet to a dramatic degree. So I also mentioned in the introduction something that really rocked my world. I could not believe it when I heard you say this, and that is that something as seemingly innocuous and delightful as cheese can be addictive. How is that possible? Oh, my God. We used to see this. We still see it in our research studies. We bring people in, they got diabetes, they want to get better. So we put them on a plant-based diet and they do great. Their blood sugars fall, they lose weight, their cholesterol's improved. But so many of them will say, no matter how good I say, I got to tell you, I still miss cheese, specifically cheese, not ice cream, not whole milk, not chicken, cheese. And I thought, it smells like old socks. Why do people want cheese so much? <laughs> but people do get addicted to it. They sure do. And we have found out why. And you're going to tell us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, cheese is more addictive than butter or whole milk or even ice cream. And the question is why? The smaller part of it is it's very salty. There's more salt in cheese, I was promised, than there is in potato chips, believe it or not. And it's fatty. It's about 70% fat. So the salty, fatty combination, people love that. Potato chips, onion rings, French fries, salt and fat equals addiction. But cheese has something that French fries don't have. It actually has mild opiates in it. And when I say opiates, I mean relatives of heroin or morphine. And what they are, they're called caso morphins, C-A-S-O morphins. That means they come from casein, C-A-S-E-I-N. Casein is the dairy protein. Coated in the protein molecule, as the milk was coming out of the cow's udder, the protein has little opiates coated into it that come out when it's digested. And so the calf would get these opiates, be a little bit calmed, and kind of bond to mother as the calf is suckling. The cheese-eating adult gets them too, but the difference is it's in all milks and all dairy products that have the protein in it. But in cheese, the protein is concentrated, and it's sort of dairy crack, if I can put it that way. Whole milk has these opiates too, but cheese has a lot of it, and it's not that strong. The strongest case of morphine has about one-tenth the brain-binding capacity compared to pure pharmacy-grade morphine. So it will not get you arrested, but it's just strong enough for a person to say, I want that. Yeah, and I'm thinking, as I read this information oh, that really explains why when I think I'm being good and I'm taking out my goat cheese and my Amy's crackers and I'm having a couple of crackers, the next thing I know, half the thing of goat cheese is gone. Why? I couldn't stop. Yeah. Well, there's a word for that that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek word that addiction researchers use. They call it moorishness, which is I had one cookie and now I need more. And now I need more. And I've already had eight, but I need another one. It's going to call it Moorish. And it's the same with cheese, is that you have a little bite with a cracker. And that was kind of good. And pretty soon the whole thing is there. The problem is, is that cheese, it's 70% fat, more salt than potato chips, as much or more cholesterol as steak. If it were any worse, it would be Vaseline, I got to tell you. And kids eat it all the time because they're told, well, it's got protein in it somewhere. If you can cut your way through the saturated fat, it's the number one source of bad fat in the diet. And so it leads to heart disease. Saturated fat is linked to Alzheimer's. Talk about the brain. Researchers in Chicago at the Chicago Health and Aging Project have looked into what causes Alzheimer's. And one of the first things they keyed in on was saturated fat, bad fat, the cholesterol-raising fat, very harmful to the brain. So anyhow, it does worry me that we say, oh, children should eat string cheese and all this stuff. 
We should take that and throw it in the trash. That is garbage, despite the fact that it has worked its way into our culture. Okay. So I just want to say, going back to your mention of the, what is it called? Morism? Yes, Moorishness. Moorishness. Not my words. Some sort of tongue-in-cheek researchers came up with it, but it does explain. I bet you can't eat one potato chip. You can't. You taste one, and then the Moorishness kicks in. Yes, which has been, and that probably is a whole nother interview, but it's actually been chemically engineered to be addictive. But going to that point, I get it with the sweet stuff. I get it with the sugar. What was shocking to me is the fact that it exists, the same addictive qualities exist in something that isn't sugar related per se, but has that casin component. Cheese is far worse than sugar. Sugar is a convenient scapegoat and everyone likes to blame sugar for problems and everyone can agree sugar is terrible. Compare sugar to cheese. Sugar has four calories in a gram. Dairy fat has nine. That's true for any kind of fat. Sugar doesn't have any opiates in it at all. It doesn't have any hormones in it. If you eat cheese, cheese came out of a cow who was pregnant nine months out of every 12 because the farmers impregnate them every year, not personally, but they do this to keep them producing milk. A pregnant cow makes hormones that get into the milk and they're more concentrated in the cheese. It's not a lot, but I mean, for men listening to this, how much estrogen do you want to be swallowing? Well, that's what you're getting with every grilled cheese sandwich. For women listening to this, do you want extra estrogens that came from a cow in your body? Now that you know they're there, the answer is going to be no, but nobody was aware of that. So don't get me wrong. Sugar is not health food. Soda is not health food. Even if it's called Dr. Pepper, it's not health food. But cheese has got it beat in every single way. We work with hospitals a lot. They're trying to get rid of the sodas. Good idea. But if you're still serving bacon and sausage and cheese sandwiches and things like that, you're inviting your patients to come back for the next five days. You went a step further in your research into milk and dairy and cheese and It involved doing a Freedom of Information Act for any journalist out there, that's the FOIA, that allows you to get federal documents after a certain period of time. What did those documents show you, Dr. Barnard, about the extra special relationship that exists between the dairy industry and the federal government, the FDA? There's lots of connections. They're they're really quite frightening. We discovered that Wendy's was producing the Wendy's Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheeseburger as a U.S. government project. Wait a minute. You can imagine a fast food chain releasing a new burger, but you wouldn't think the government would ask them to do it. (laughs) And I could show you the contract that the U.S. government signed with Wendy's to release the Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheeseburger. When was this? Just out of curiosity. A couple of decades ago now. But since that time, they worked with Taco Bell so that as you're going through the drive-thru, they'd say, welcome to Taco Bell. And then a suggestion. Would you like to try a quesadilla today? Cheese. Cheese was the thing. They worked with McDonald's. They worked with Burger King. They worked with all of them. They worked with Pizza Hut to put an entire pound of cheese on one serving of pizza called the ultimate pizza. And why do they do it? Because in Wisconsin and in Florida and in California, there are farmers raising cattle. They milk the cattle. They have a bunch of milk. And the more demand there is for it, the more money they get. They lobby Congress heavily. Congress institutes laws to favor them. And so the government, by law, must promote American agricultural products, especially cheese. And then when it got got ugly, in the year 2000, we discovered that the federal policymakers deciding what Americans should eat. I'm talking about the people developing the dietary guidelines for Americans. Through the Freedom of Information Act, we got all of their resumes, their CVs. We found that six of the 11 decision makers had been paid by industry, especially the dairy industry, some the egg industry, some the meat industry. So I filed a lawsuit in federal district court here 
And I got to say, the government had all their attorneys. We had one, but it helps if you're right. And the judge instantly ruled we were right. You cannot run a country that way. Since then, it's gotten better, but industry is still heavily involved in promoting what people know about food. So to those or for those young people who grew up with parents, as I did, telling us to drink milk, whether to eat cheese, because there's protein in it and it's good for you, what do you say? Well, there is protein in it. However, there's protein in lots of things. Broccoli doesn't want to brag, but it's one-third protein. A kid who never eats animal products at all will get easily more than enough protein without any milk or whatever. And there's calcium. The cow doesn't make calcium. Calcium is an element. It's in the earth. And so it gets into the roots of grass. And the cow eats the grass and some of that calcium ends up in milk. But if you eat green vegetables yourself, hopefully not grass, but broccoli, kale, collards, Brussels sprouts, if you eat that, that's what nature thought you were going to do. And so your digestive tract has the capacity to digest those and extract the calcium, in fact, about twice as efficiently as it does with milk. That's our natural food. So milk is a cultural thing, and it's not universal. About a generation ago, it started coming into Japan and China. Milk was a European thing, and to some extent, a Middle Eastern thing to a degree. It came into India fairly soon, but I was doing an interview with a young Japanese reporter. We were talking about milk at the time, and she would just wrinkle her nose. And she said at the end of the interview, she said, I'm sorry, I'm just so upset. Our government is now pushing us to try to drink milk so that we're big like Americans, and I just don't like it. It wasn't their culture, and it shouldn't be part of our culture. Mm. So, Dr. Barnard, why do you believe our young listeners should adopt a plant-based approach to eating? And how is it different or just another way of saying become a vegan? It's another way of saying effectively the same thing, except when people hear the word vegan, they think that means I have to have a taste for folk music or work in a library or have a philosophy degree or something like that. And wear tie-dye. <laughs> wear tie-dye or come from Hollywood, or something like that. And so plant-based means I'm just like everybody else, except I don't eat meat or animal products. I'm kidding a little bit, but that's kind of how the word has come around. I got to say, vegan is exactly the opposite of how I was raised, but but you learn two things when you adopt this diet. One is, it's really good for you. <laughs> I mean, it's like your cholesterol level comes way down, weight problems just melt away. Athletic performance is the big thing now. It started out with distance runners, the Scott Jurics and Brendan Brazier and Rich Roll. And then it was the basketball players. And then Venus Williams first. And then Serena. She did it because she needed to be healthier. She had Sjogren's disease, which is an autoimmune condition and a vegan diet effectively cured her. And then Novak Djokovic, who's the number one tennis player in the world, said, well, I'm going to do that. And he did one better. He started a vegan restaurant in Monaco. And then the racer, Lewis Hamilton, is the top Formula One auto racer, top racer in the world. And he's been vegan for years. And he's tweeting about it all the time. Anyway, I'm digressing. So bottom line, you discover that it's really good for you. But then you also discover it's surprisingly easy. You thought it was going to be hard, but it's not hard. You're at Taco Bell. You skip the meat taco. You have the bean burrito. This is not the pinnacle of culinary art, but it works. And you're having pizza. You just leave the cheese off and you have extra sauce and put on all the veggies. You had a sushi bar. You have the cucumber roll or the asparagus roll or the sweet potato roll. You could still have all the other stuff. Any Italian restaurant, they'll make you spaghetti or rabiata spaghetti marinara, you know, there's choices everywhere. And Subway would be more than happy to leave off the meat and cheese cheaper to them to load it up with all the veggies. So you discover it's easy, you feel better. Your friends are kind of gradually decompensating and they're on every diet known to humanity to try to control their weight. Those problems have left you at a little bit of arm's length. Mm. So because you are a psychiatrist, 
I have to ask you about the gut-brain connection. That was also a revelation to me. I think I only learned about it a couple of years ago. Could you share with our young listeners what it is and in effect, what happens to the forgetfulness, the cloudy headedness? I can speak from personal experience just saying that I think my memory has gotten a whole lot better since I changed my diet. We hear this all the time. And I have to say, this is really a frontier. I don't think we're anywhere near done with the research in this area. But what we know is this. Your digestive tract has healthy bacteria in it, and there are, you need them. You don't want to have a totally sterile digestive tract. You need your healthy little bacteria in there. They help you digest food. They produce compounds that influence your health in a variety of ways. But there are also not so healthy bacteria in there. And researchers did a wild experiment. These researchers were in Pittsburgh. They brought in a group of men in Pittsburgh, and they said, we want you to start eating these were African-American men. They said, we want you to eat a rural African diet of root vegetables and beans and simple foods and throw out the chicken nuggets and the pizza. And they did this for two weeks. And at the same time, they recruited a group of men from rural South Africa. And they said, we want you to eat the Pittsburgh diet, which was cheese and wings and all that kind of stuff. And within two weeks time, they could show that their gut bacteria were changing dramatically. It's just like if I take my garden and I'm growing roses and I suddenly start throwing sand into it, which would be great for cactus. The roses aren't growing so well anymore. And I can do the same with my cactus garden. You put in the, the wrong soil, they don't grow. Your bacteria in your digestive tract are like that. And all you have to do is to throw in a lot of cheese and meat, and I'm including chicken and fish in the bad category. You throw them in there and you no longer get the growth of healthy bacteria. Over the long run, yes, it can affect your health in a variety of ways, including higher cancer risk and so forth. But if you discover your digestion is not so high and your mentation is not so high, those are the two things. Mentation it, being? You feel this kind of brain fog or the two o'clock slowdown where I'm just dead all afternoon unless I have a Red Bull, a cigarette, or I got to prop myself up. That comes often from what people ate and the fact that their gut bacteria have been altered by a continually not so hot diet. And isn't it true that the vast majority, I want to say 70 or 80% of the feel-good hormone, the serotonin, is actually in the gut? It's a funny thing. Your gut bacteria make things that we over years have come to take from them. And that's part of our evolution. And if you don't eat in a healthy way, then you don't get the advantage of that. Now, let me say also, by the way, young people are the folks who have a heart, sometimes a little bit more than their parents have had. And so they're thinking about the environment. And they're thinking, you know, we got close to 100 million cows and you're belching methane every day. And so, yeah, cap your smokestacks and drive a smaller car, but how about if we change our diet? And if we do that, that's good. And for people who have a heart for animals, which I have developed, didn't have when I was young the way I do now, Americans eat a million animals every hour. They're not having a nice time. If we change our diet, it's good for them. It's good for the earth. It's good for us. And more than anything else, it's good for the next generation, that the kids we are one day going to raise and their kids. You're just making this world a healthier place and a kinder place. All good things. Before I say goodbye to you, Dr. Barnard, I want to give you the opportunity to tell our young listeners who may be in the Washington, Virginia, Maryland region at the end of July about a really incredible conference that the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine holds every summer called the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. It's July 26th and 27th. 
Would you be kind enough to tell our young listeners what they could expect to find there? Yeah, it's a great conference, and I do hope people will go. I have to say, it's a little more technical than some conferences. The first day, which is the 25th, is a little more down to earth and gets people up to speed. The second two days, the audience is filled with doctors who really want to learn things. Let me mention one other resource that I hope young people will look at. Go on your iPhone or your Android and look up 21 Day Vegan Kickstart. It's an application. We've had about 700,000 users, something like that. It's fun. It's free. Nobody's selling anything. But go on it and don't make any long-term commitment. Try this for 21 days. There's videos, there's recipes, there's tips for eating out, tips for things you might want to buy at the regular grocery store, and it will just change your life, English and Spanish. Fantastic. So for those of you who either want to learn about the 21-day kickstart, they can go to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine website, or they can go on the App Store. Yeah, wherever you get your apps. Sure, you go to the App Store or anywhere else. 21-day vegan kickstart, free, fun. And brush up your Spanish while you're at it. Excellent. And if you're interested in the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, that is at the end of July, you can check out our show notes. We'll have a link there as well, but you can go to P, like Paul, C-R-M, like mother.com, and you can sign up to attend. Dr. Barnard, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community, even if it was only figurative. It was such a pleasure to get to do this interview with you in person. The work that you and your colleagues here at the Physicians Committee are doing is so incredibly important. It's extraordinary to think that you've been doing it now for over 35 years, and I can't wait to see what's coming next. Well, let me thank you, Andrea. I have to say, in any given day at our clinic, a doctor might see 18 patients, 20 patients, something like that. But you take a message and you reach a whole lot more people like that in one single broadcast. And you'll never know who it is who's been informed and inspired and changes their life and passes along to somebody else. But I guarantee you, in any given day, you're saving a whole lot more lives than doctors. So thank you for being part of this collective team. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 